This is Inside the Writer's Head with Emma Carlson Byrne, the Library Foundation of Cincinnati and Hamilton County's 2018 Writer-in-Residence. The Library Foundation's Writer-in-Residence program promotes writing, literacy, and creativity while furthering the library's mission of connecting people with the world of ideas and information. Here now is Emma Carlson Byrne. Hello all, I'm Emma Carlson Byrne, the Cincinnati Public Library Writer-in-Residence and host of Inside the Writer's Head. My guest this month is literary agent Michael Barrett. Michael is a partner with Distel, Godrich, and Barrett. He's been with the agency for 18 years, ever since he started as an intern while studying film and TV production at NYU. Michael handles just about every genre and style, with a few exceptions. He takes children's, middle grade, young adult and adult fiction, thrillers, horror, humor, crime, LGBTQ, IA+, and mysteries, among others. On the nonfiction side, he represents biography, history, humor, LGBTQ, IA+, and memoir, just to name a few. Michael has about 40 active clients on his list, including award-winning and best-selling authors such as Gail Foreman, Sarah Zarr, Jewel Parker Rhodes, Emily XR Pan, Nova Rensuma, Lisa McMahon, James Riley, Rhoda Jansen, and Molly Weisenberg. And full disclosure, Michael is my own agent, and he has been for almost 10 years now. He is everything that anyone would want in an agent. He's smart, and he's kind, and responsive, and positive, and when he needs to be, he is tough. I'm so grateful to have had him guide me through the publishing world for the last 10 years. And Michael, I'm so glad that you could come and talk with me today. So thank you. Thank you for having me. And also, thanks for that very kind introduction. Oh, well, I mean, that, yeah. And it's, and every word of it is true. So, um, Michael, you and I have talked a little bit about um, how I have been the writer-in-residence for the Cincinnati Library for almost a year now. I'm almost done. I'll be done at the end of December. And I have conducted many workshops and I have held many, many discussions with aspiring writers. And it is not an exaggeration to say that the number one topic that we talk about is, you can probably guess, how to get a literary agent. When I held a workshop a few weeks ago called, um, it was about navigating the world of publishing, I would say that about it was about 100 people there. I would say that 50% of the questions asked on all topics were about how to get an agent and the other 50% were about everything else. It's sort of like I've sort of been thinking this year that agents are like a secret gate to publishing. So there's like this world and in front of the world, there's a gate. And if you can get an agent... That means that the gate will open and you can enter the world of publishing. But to get an agent, you need a code. You need to access the gate. And to to access the gate, you need to punch in this code. And so writers spend all this time trying to like punch out different combinations of this secret code in hopes, and that's trying to get an agent in hopes that they can, you know, one will work and they'll be accepted by an agent and then they can enter the world of publishing. 
So I'm, I'm really glad you're here to talk to us so that we can maybe try to access the code a little bit for people. We can shed a little light on this mysterious and shadowy world. So tell us, first of all, a little bit about yourself personally, and then we'll talk a little bit about the business. You've been with Distal, Godrich, and Brett a long time. It didn't used to be called Distal, Godrich, and Brett. It used to be called right. Distal and Godrich. And I remember when it was called that, and then you became a partner. But you actually did not set out to be a literary agent. Like when you were 12, you weren't like, what I want to be is a literary agent. That's what I want to do. So tell us what you sort of saw your, the path you saw yourself going towards when you were in college or in university at NYU, and then how that path led you towards becoming an agent. Sure. Yeah. I, I had no idea that literary agents existed. Um, I, I did right. not like know. Like who that does, that right? Nobody knows I, it's a thing. Not- in the industry, why, why would you know about that? Right. Um, you know, I knew and probably should have been able to figure out that they did, right? Actors and, and writers in Hollywood have agents, sports stars have agents, why not authors? But I assumed that it was low stakes enough where maybe they didn't need them. Um, but while I was studying uh, a film and television production at NYU, I figured out that wasn't the path that I wanted to go down for a variety of reasons. Um, and, uh, my senior year um, had an opportunity to take an internship at what was then Jane Vista Literary Management um, and, uh, you know, needed something to do and needed some money. So took that on and and um, in a very short period of time figured out that being a literary agent was something that was really appealing to me. Uh, it was a job that combined a lot of my different interests, both in terms of um, story and and helping people to develop story. I mean, you know, studying film is really studying the the essence of story and how to, um, you know, put together something that has three-act structure and, and, you know, what the important elements of story are. Uh, But then also being an advocate for authors and going to bat for people and helping to get people what they deserve, or it's close to that as you can actually accomplish. Um, So putting both those things together, I think, was just super appealing to me. Um, And I liked what the job sort of entailed. Um, You know, it was a lot of contact with people, contact with writers. Uh, And then, of course, also a fair amount of reading. So it just, it was something that really surprised me. It wasn't something I ever expected to do. It was not on my radar. Um, But once I I got there, I really fell in love with it. Well, and I can say, um, you know, just from having you as my agent in my corner for 10 years, from a writer's perspective, having an agent is kind of mind-blowing because the agent is on your team. Like you're on the same team there for you. And as a writer, kind of no one's really for you except your agent. I mean, if you have a book contract, then your editor is for you. But sometimes you can feel adversarial towards your editor. Um, and a lot of times there is, you know, no editor because you're trying to sell a book. And I can say that, you know, as a writer, it's like just, you know, you feel so mind-blowingly grateful to your agent because they're like, they they want you to succeed. You guys are linked you know, together. And it's a sort of like, you know, I can never get over it. 10 years in, I'm still like, wow, Michael's on my side. Like, he doesn't think I'm stupid. It's amazing. (laughs) So um, like, you get to do that with lots of people. You know, that's, I mean, that's kind of nice for your job. 
Yeah, I um, like the fact that my interests align with my authors, that the way that I make money is when my authors make money. That's the only way I make money. I don't get paid otherwise. Right, um, So right. It, it's, a, it's a good feeling to sort of be able to, to hitch your wagon to someone else's, to place your bets on people, to say that, you know, these authors that you represent have something to say that's important and that the world should be paying attention to uh, and helping them to do that. Well, and I'm glad you um, sort of touched very briefly on on how you get paid because I think uh, one thing I was hoping that we could discuss is something that I we I often talk about with uh, writers and we talk about at my our workshops very frequently. Um, so you know, for people who let's say have not entered the world of publishing, let's say they have a manuscript and they're interested in getting an agent, but they have you know very little experience with with sort of the ins and outs of the publishing world. Tell us um, exactly what a literary agent does for a writer and does not do for a writer. So for instance, at the last workshop, somebody asked, does an agent help to promote your work? And a lot of people ask how an agent gets paid. So give us a little primer. So basically, you know, when it comes down to it, the primary role of the agent is to sell an author's manuscript to publishers. That is, is like the very, very base level of what we do. What that entails, of course, is something much larger. So the first thing that we have to do is identify which projects we think are saleable. So we get submissions in from, from writers, starting with query letters, which I have a feeling we'll address at some point. We will. Uh, then from that point, reviewing manuscripts, deciding which manuscripts are viable, uh, at that point, signing up the authors. And then the, the first real step is to work with the author to make their uh, project ready for submission. Um, and that's a different project process depending on what kind of project it is. So for a novel, whether it's uh, for children or adults, that means having the complete manuscript and having the complete manuscript ready for review by publishers. That can be a, a different, I mean, it is a different process for each book and can, you know, really, uh, there's a wide range of the amount of work that needs to be done on a manuscript before it's ready to go. Some things really only need some small tweaks um, and, and are ready to go. You know, oftentimes, first time authors have been working on a novel for 10 years. They may have been working, workshopping it for that long. They may have had professional help in different ways. They may have had responses from agents or even editors about their work, and, and it might be quite developed and ready to go. Other times, uh, you know, there are the seeds of something really good. The voice might be really great, but there might be plot issues that need fixing. You know, the whole last third of the book might need to be rewritten. So that process of getting a manuscript ready for submission can take anywhere from a couple of weeks to several months, um, sometimes years. It, it really depends on the book. Um, for nonfiction, nonfiction, again, both on the adult and children's sides, typically sold from proposal. Uh, proposals are documents that range anywhere from 30 to, you know, sometimes even 100 pages. Um, and that do a really good job of pitching the nonfiction work. So, you know, containing an overview that talks about what the book's about, a section about the market, who the book is for, a section about the author and why the author is the right person to, to do the book, what their platform is meaning how do they reach people? You know, are, are you a celebrity? Are you an Instagram celebrity? Are you a Twitter celebrity? You know, how do, you, how do people know who you are and why will they want to read your book? And then, of course, having a, a sample material that actually shows the, uh, the author's writing. And again, putting that together is a different process for every book. You know, sometimes I wind up working with authors who come to me who have a platform 
and clearly have something to say, but don't yet have any sort of proposal or any real writing in place. So that can take them a long time to actually get a, a first draft of a proposal together before I even start editing something. Sometimes things start at the proposal stage. So again, you're talking about a process that can last for a few weeks or a few months, depending on what it is that you're starting with. Um, the next step of the process is then for me to go out and to pitch to publishers and to hopefully sell the book. Um, the reality, of course, is that we do not sell every book that we pitch, uh, unfortunately. I would be a much happier person if I did. Um, <laughs> and uh, authors would be a lot happier, for sure. Um, yes. But that the the process there, again, is different for every book. Not everything goes exactly the same. But basically, uh, the usual process is for a book to be sent to a group of editors, anywhere from a few editors, you know, a handful, five or six, uh, you know, up to 20. Um, and to hopefully have at least one person, if not several people, make an offer on the book. Um, we can kind of skip over what happens in that because I don't think that's the most important thing as to what an agent does. Uh, but they will obviously negotiate that deal. Um, and get the best deal possible for the author, whether it's one offer or several. Um, once that deal is closed, there's a contract that needs to be negotiated, not just the main deal points, like how much money you're getting paid or what the royalty rates are or what rights um, are, are part of it, but the actual contract itself, which is very detailed and is many, many pages and oftentimes full of legalese. And part of the agent's job and the agency's job is to review that contract and get to get the best terms possible. Uh, one of the reasons that um, agents have the power that they do is that they're able to use their collective knowledge of all of the deals that they've negotiated to negotiate the best terms for each author. Um, it, it's one of the thing reasons that uh, agents exist is so that it, it's a, sort of a collective action for authors to get the best terms against publishers. Uh, you know, if you represent a huge best-selling author and are able to get great terms with somebody, hopefully then you can use that boilerplate, the fact that you've already negotiated great terms uh, on contracts for authors who are not huge bestsellers uh, and to improve uh, their circumstances too. Um, once the, the deal is done, uh, the, the agent is there really to help the author through the entire publication process. Uh, to be there to hold their hand and to explain things because it's a bit esoteric um, and very specific. Um, and, you know, there are lots of things that as somebody who's never published a book for, before, you wouldn't know. So having an agent is great so that they can help you to understand what the process looks like. Um, what, I, you know, the the question about whether or not agents help to promote work is sort of a tricky one. Um, you know, we certainly, as an agency, use our social media channels, um, our own social media to try to promote our authors. Um, we don't have in-house publicity. Some agencies do. Different agencies take different approaches to that. Um, so in one of the, the, you know, in the process of researching agents, which is an important part of trying to find one, you know, making sure that you're reaching out to agents and agencies who reflect the sorts of things you're looking for is really important. Um, I, I would say, in general, most agencies don't work to do the publicity and marketing for an author, but what they do is work with the author to discuss the publicity and marketing plans with the publisher to make sure that the publisher is doing the best that they can do for that particular book. 
And obviously, every book is going to have a different level of commitment from the publisher as to what they're willing to do. So they're still um, representing the author's best interest, even if they're not going to handle the publicity and marketing, they're still trying to get the author the best deal they can from the publisher with regards to those things. That's right. And then, and then after the yeah. book is published, there's still more work to be done because then we're processing all the payments, reviewing royalty statements to make sure that they're accurate, that what, um, you know, what the publisher is saying they sold it matches up with uh, what, what we can find out. Um, and then also negotiating new contracts. And I think the, the most important and sort of unheralded role of the, the agent is to be a career manager and to work with the author to figure out what the next best steps are, what other ancillary rights might be available to be exploited. You know, are film rights something that, that are a possibility? Could there be a film buyer for something? Are, are there audio rights if you've held on to those or foreign rights? Um, there, there's a lot of management that goes on. And I think that's where, um, you know, I think some people are a little bit more familiar with how agents work in uh, the film and TV world where, you know, I, I think because they've been depicted in film and television, which helps, um, but where agents are sort of wheeling and dealing and it's all about numbers and deals. Um, in reality, uh, publishing agents are both agents and managers, like managers act in Hollywood. Managers in Hollywood are the ones who actually hustle and go out and get deals and try to set things up for people. Um, in the publishing industry, agents do both of those jobs. That is actually very interesting, Michael. That's something, surprisingly, that I did not know. Even after all of this time, it never really occurred to me that an agent is also a career manager. So that's pretty interesting. I mean, you and I talk a lot, I think, about what it is that you're going to do next. Uh, we do. You know? We do. Maybe I never think right? there's ever going to be anything next. I'm sort of like, <laughs> I'm always sure I'm like on my way out the door and that you're just, you know, humoring me and uh, all that. Maybe I finally get it through my head after 10 years that, you know, like there's a whole career involved here and one worth focusing that's on. That's right. And, you know, I think a lot of authors are insecure and feel that way. Yeah. I don't think that's abnormal. We have big imposter syndrome. And I and you have actually spent, let's not forget, you, you know, I would say collectively many hours on the phone over the last 10 years telling me that my ideas are good and that the next step is going to be this one and that we're, you know, we're going to work on the next manuscript. And, you know, the other thing I want to point out that you, I, my personal experience with you, Michael, is that we sold a novel of mine about 10 years ago now, and you did a lot of editing on it. You really functioned as an editor for me. I mean, we went back and forth on the draft, which was sort of an outline in three chapters, probably five or six times, and it took like maybe a month or two. And, um, and you know, at the time, we talked about how that is something that you offer and your agency, I think, offers, but like not all agents do. It's not necessarily in the job description. Is that right? I think at this point... All agents do some level of editorial. I think there were times where maybe that was a little bit different. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's very hard to not do editorial work before you send it out and to have a sale just because the market has become so difficult. Mm -hmm. Both on the adult and children's side, it is just, it's rough. Uh, and if you don't have the best product, you're not going to sell things. And I think most of the time there is some polishing to be done. Sometimes there's more and sometimes there's less. And I think too, you know, I tend to be most involved in my client's work at the beginning. So making sure from the beginning that we're setting up a project that we think is viable, that the story makes sense, that it's something that feels like it's going to be saleable. Um, and, 
you know, I try to stay involved in that process along the way so that when I get a manuscript from a client, it's not a surprise. Um, and, and so that we're sort of on the same page before we even get to that point. Yeah, we don't want any surprises. That would not be good. I don't like surprises. <laughs> Me neither. So, Michael, let's lift the veil a little further. Tell us a little bit about, like, your daily life. You're out in Los Angeles, and um, you've got an office in L.A. and an office in New York. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. So tell us how you kind of divide your time during the day. Take us through, like, a sample sort of the day in the life of an agent, what you're doing with your hours. Yes, I wish that all of my days looked the same because I would probably be able to, to get things done a lot better. Unfortunately, I don't have entire control over my day. Uh, but most of my day, most of my time spent in the office is spent communicating with my clients and communicating with editors. So returning emails from clients, sending emails to clients, returning emails from editors, sending emails to editors, doing sort of the administrative part of my job. Um, you know, uh, looking over royalty statements, looking over contracts. Um, no two days really look the same, except for the fact that basically my days are spent parked in front of a computer and on the phone. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, at this point, I would say it's sort of 80-20 email and, and phone. Um, it used to be a little more evenly divided. And I, I happen to really like the phone because I think sometimes it can solve problems faster. Me too. Um, but a lot of people are very uncomfortable with the phone. So I, I, I try to match my communication style with uh, the communication style of my clients. Um, and editors are like notoriously phone shy. So, um, <laughs> but, it, you know, like I said, most of my like, you know, on the clock hours are spent doing that administrative kind of work, sending, um, you know, editorial notes to people, um, processing rejections that come in ah. and, uh, you know, discussing them with, with authors and figuring out if there's anything to be gleaned from them, anything to change about their work. Um, and, I, you know, most of my reading and editing and that sort of thing happens in other times where I can put aside a chunk of quiet time to actually deal with it. Very rarely do I have time during my actual, you know, eight hour, you know, nine to five sort of work day to sit and read something. To go through manuscripts. Yeah, that's just, it's tough because you, you want, you know, to be focused and not interrupted by, you know, emails and, and phone calls every five minutes. Right. So it basically sounds like you're not working very many hours, Michael. Mostly you're just like sitting around, like reading novels, going to lunches. Is that right? Taking, yeah. Taking I mean, walks. you know, the funny thing for me is now that I'm out now, when I was in New York, um, I, you know, I had lunches every day and that was a, a big part of, of each day was like getting to and from lunch and being at lunch. Yeah. Um, and now the nice thing about being in LA is, you know, most of publishing is in New York still. Um, and so when I'm here, I can actually get more work done in a shorter period of time because I'm not, uh, <laughs> not, not running around. <laughs> yeah, I, it really does make a difference. Uh, and then, of course, now the difference is, though, that like, you know, uh, several times a year I go to New York for meetings and then I'm in back to back meetings from, you know, morning till night instead. Right. Um, so it's just a different way of getting in all of those meetings. It's compressed. Yep. So, Michael, let's talk a little bit about the big, big question of query letters. And, you know, you and I, when we kind of went over this interview um, before we started recording, we talked to, you know, we exchanged a couple notes about query letters. So I know you have a couple of thoughts that are specific to them. And, you know, query letters are 
you know, a source of a huge amount of stress for beginning writers. Um, they're your first attempt to contact an agent. Most of the time, if you're a rank beginner, most of the time you have never written anything like that before. You have not, it's your very first sort of attempt to like punch into the publishing world. And so really people, you know, these, this is like kind of an emotional topic for people. I mean, it is like, it is stressful. And I don't care how many templates you're going to offer in the, you know, front of Writer's Digest, there's going to be stress. Um, so, you know, talk to us a little bit about from an agent's perspective, the one everyone wants to hear from. Tell us a little bit about your feelings about query letters, mistakes, good good qualities of letters, letters that you've seen, and, and your specific thoughts. Query letters are a tough topic for me because uh, I, I think a lot of times there's an overemphasis placed on them. This is not to say that they aren't important. Clearly yeah. they are. It is your first point of contact with an agent uh, for the most part, right? Over the transom queries are how most of my uh, material comes to me. It's how I've found most of my clients. Right. Um, I will say at this point that a lot of those people are referrals. Um, but even those referrals are sending query letters that I'm reading. So I don't want to discount the importance of a query letter. It's important that you get it right. You want to tell people what your book is about. You don't want to be super coy about it. I think direct query letters are always best. Something that just lays out, here is my 60,000 you know, 60, word YA novel uh, that deals with whatever it deals with. And then a description of the plot. And then you know, if you are uh, at all an interesting person and have something to say about yourself, something you know, short about yourself. And that's about it. Uh, I think people tend to go a little bit overboard and get overly worried about queries. I think part of that is that there's like what I like to call the query industrial complex, which is, uh, you know, a lot of people are able to make money teaching classes yes. and writing about query letters because they're kind of an easy mark, right? Yes. You know, everyone knows it's your first point of contact. And then it's something that's easy to sort of critique and pull apart right. in a short space, you know, Agents can't be reviewing, you know, 30 manuscripts for people, but they can review 30, 30 query letters and talk about those. Right. Um, and so I, I think people get kind of scared about it. And then I think people also hear a lot of query horror stories um, about like people who've done dumb things or been horrible. <laughs> but I think the people who are paying attention to that, the people who hear those horror stories are not the ones who are committing the, the query atrocities anyway. Right. Um, you know, the people who are paying attention and listening to this podcast um, or, or reading in Writer's Digest or wherever else about these sorts of things are not the people that are going to, you know, send a query that's blind copied to every agent in publishing right. or just copied, not blind copied. Right. Um, you know, they're not the people who are, are you know, I don't know, going to insult agents in their query letter or, you know say, hey, I've written the next bestseller, you have to rep this without telling, you know, the agent what the book's about. Right. So I think the sort of simple mistakes that people like to cite, and, and frankly, I think in a, a really not good way, some people like to sort of mock online. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think that's just low hanging fruit. And it's easy. Yeah. I don't think it's productive. And I think it's in the end kind of scaremongering. Mm -hmm. I, you are blowing everyone's mind, Michael, right now, everyone is like sitting up with their the, the top of their heads blown off. Well, I think, you know, like I said, I, I, my, my views on this are probably controversial. I don't know that every agent would agree with me. But I think, you know, I, I would have said when I started in this career, just because of the advice that I heard from people, 
I would have said, oh, you want to put almost as much time into your query as you do your manuscript. And that's just not true. Um, your manuscript's the most important thing. Yes, your query letter is the thing that's going to get your manuscript read. But if you have a really great book and you are describing it accurately, I don't think that you're going to miss out. You know, um, I always hear that like writing queries is unnatural, but writing lots of things we write is unnatural. You know, most of the things we write are not novels. And yet everyone seems to do that fine. Right. Um, I, it, it's a business introduction letter. I think it is pretty simple and straightforward. And while you do want to put effort into it, and I certainly recommend, you know, having other people read it, you know, especially if you're in a critique group or, you know, go to workshops, having other people look at it and say, hey, you know, I read your novel and I don't think you're describing it accurately. That's great feedback to get or, you know, that you're missing out on what's really exciting about the book. You know, this angle is the thing that that really, you know, might get someone to, to sit up and pay attention. That's all great advice to take. But I I don't, I think people stress about it more than they need to. I mean, Michael, you know, I have to say, uh, I mean, you know, you have always been an extremely just sort of honest and direct person who also, you know, is like a very sincere and genuine person without a lot of front on you. And I think that, you know, your feelings about query letters really speak to like the person that I've gotten to know over these last 10 years in that, you know, like we're all in this together. Like agents are not out to punish writers for writing, like screwing up their query letter. Like agents are out to find great books to get published and like they're not gonna you know there's no sort of like punitive system you know where you're gonna get like dinged you know like oh this query letter written in the wrong form you know the story's great but you know forget it you didn't you know you didn't start it right right absolutely and honestly you know what even if you misspell my name in the query letter if the query is great i'm not gonna care right. people misspell my name all the time right. Um, right. i misspell my name sometimes i i'm not gonna hold that against anyone i'm also the king of typos so <laughs> you know i i'm not gonna hold it against someone if there's one typo in the query letter now if there are 50 right. well you know that's a red flag but again i think if you were listening to this podcast you're not gonna have 50 typos right. in your query letter right that's what spell check is for. And there's no necessary, there sounds like you're, what you're saying is there's no reason to use query letters as kind of a hook to hang your anxiety on. You know, let's focus on the story. Like, let's focus on writing a great book and then just, d- right. just describe it. Like, tell me what your great book is about so we can see if That's it's right. publishable. That's right. Because the thing is, if you don't have a great book, it doesn't matter how great your query letter is. Yes. I have I have told people that. I Maybe I should just like have your job, Michael. I have said <laughs> that if your book is that great, there's nothing that's going to stop it from getting published. I mean, you can write your query letter in crayon. If it's that mind-blowing, I mean, maybe not that. But, you know, uh, you get my point. Yes. And vice versa. Right. I mean, you know. Right. A, a great query letter and a crappy book, right. it, it doesn't matter. And I think if you have a great book and a mediocre query letter, right. you can get by. I know I, I won't name any names, no. but I have sold books by people who sent me medior, mediocre query letters. Yes, right. And they have – and has made no difference. We just want to write – let's write the no. good – let's write the books. All right. So, right. Michael, let's have a few just sort of quick personal questions for you as we're sort of like moving toward the close tell me what your favorite part of being an agent is just like number one like the meat what you love the most i think the thing i love most is seeing people's dreams come true oh well you know it's very exciting for somebody i think especially publishing their first book the 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 first time they hold that book in their hand oh my god i mean it's really transformative you know uh, like i said there are so many people who I represent who have been working on that first novel for 10 years. Yeah. 
Um, so to see something that you've put that much work into pay off into something that's published and that people are going to read is just super exciting. And I don't think there's anything, you know, hitting bestseller lists is nice. Having movies made is nice. There are lots of great things that can happen in your career, but I, I don't think there's anything quite like the magic of, of opening that like first oh package and seeing your book for the first time. I still remember where I was, Michael, in my living room, my old house, and looking at the answering machine when I was listening to your message that told me that you were calling to say that you had sold this novel. And I remember like I could just picture it like anything, like the light blinking on the machine. It was it was pretty effing exciting, I have to say. Yeah. So and now tell us. Also, just as honestly, what is your least favorite part? What part would really you would just rather do without? I would rather not deal with publishers who are bad at conveying information. Uh, that's like a complicated answer to that uh, because it's not as straightforward as like finding people joy. Right. Um, but, you know, I think the biggest challenge for me is that publishers in general don't like sharing information. They like holding that information for themselves. Uh, they don't want to tell what authors, everything that's going on. Um, and that's very frustrating because I think, you know, knowledge is power and people knowing what's going on with their book is really important because it's their book in the end. Their, the, their name is on that book. Uh, and in the end, they're the ones who wind up being responsible um, for the sales of the book. Um, because when another publisher goes in to sell the next book, they're going to look at the sales of the previous book. They're not going to say, oh, what are the sales of the previous Random House book? Mm -hmm. They're going to say, you know, what, what are the previous sales of Emma's last book? Right. So I, I think making sure that authors have control over their work uh, to the largest degree possible is the most important thing. And so for me, the hardest part of my job and the thing I dislike the most is when publishers are um, getting in the way of conveying that important information back to authors. Yeah, that makes sense. Not, not necessarily holding up their end of the bargain in every way. I, even if they're holding up their end of the bargain, if we don't know, if that hasn't been communicated... Mm -hmm. How, how do I, we can't know that they've done it. Um, and I think that's, what's frustrating is just a, a sort of lack of communication yeah. about the things that are actually happening for an author's book when it is their book. Yeah. Yeah. They own the copyright. I mean, like this really is their work. Right. Right. Like who owns it is sort of getting a little muddied. Yes, yeah. I think so. And, and you know, the thing is the work that publishers do is really important. The editorial work they put in is important. The marketing work, the publicity work. Um, going out to, you know, uh, sell things in, in other markets. Like they, they do a lot of work. They bring a lot of value to this. I think publishers are important. I, I don't think self-publishing is the answer to these problems, but I think transparency on the part of the publishers is. Yeah. Yeah. That seems, I mean, that seems to make sense, right? Yeah. I am very actively looking for new clients, which isn't something that I can always say, but I really am at the moment. So this is good timing to be doing a podcast. Um, I am, I'm reading a lot uh, and trying to find new things. Um, it's sort of a cyclical process being an agent where, you know, sometimes you are so busy with the things that you're trying to sell that you don't have time to take new things on. And I'm at a point where I can take new things on, which is really exciting. Um, I have two books coming out in the spring that I'm I'm particularly excited about. This is not to say that I'm not excited about all of the books I have coming out next year, but part of the reason I'm even naming these is they're literally on the shelf right in front of me in uh, ARC form, so they, they stand out. Uh, one of them is called uh, The Line Tender. It's by an author, Kate Allen. 
uh, it's a beautiful middle grade debut novel that uh, deals with grief and coming of age and it is one of the most beautiful novels I've ever read. It made me cry every time I read it. Um, and I'm, I'm excited for other people to read it too. Uh, and then in a really, really different vein, uh, my author, James Riley, he's a New York Times bestseller of a series called Story Thieves, uh, has a new series starting this spring uh, called The Revenge of Magic. Uh, and it is a super fun, uh, action-packed, thrilling series uh, about uh, a world in which, uh, our world, but uh, in which uh, magic is sort of rediscovered to have been an ancient secret that has been hidden for a long time and now it's been unearthed, but the only people who can control it are kids. Yeah. It's super fun. Michael, thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you for having me. For the Cincinnati Public Library, I'm writer-in-residence Emma Carlson-Byrne. Thanks for listening to this episode of Inside the Writer's Head. Special thanks to the Library Foundation for funding the Writer-in-Residence program. You can meet Emma at various events throughout the year or at open office hours on the third Saturday of every month from 10 a.m. until noon at the Coryville Branch Library. Learn more by visiting cincinnatilibrary.org slash writerinresidence. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss future episodes and leave us a review. It helps other book lovers find us. Thank you for listening.